Hey everyone, welcome to Way of Life Podcast, where we firmly believe that everyone picks a way in life and what way you pick is extremely important and directly affects how you live. In this podcast, we seek to interview people from all around Australia and beyond on life's most important topics. Whether you're a Christian, a skeptic, or someone with a whole heap of questions, this podcast is for you. My name is Matt, a pastor living in Brisbane, Australia. This is Way of Life Podcast. So we've had a, quite a number of questions come in, Gibbo. Um, first one, some people, uh, sorry, people seem to extend more understanding to those who have acted wrongly out of pain than God does in the Bible. Uh, what do you think about that? Uh, yeah, well, I, you know, I can't verify or deny what the person's claiming. You know, that's the way it seems. Uh, and I, you know, I think it's, Fair enough observation in my experience that I'll often be compassionate towards um, people who I know have suffered and more understanding of their situation. Um, what the Bible assures us of is that God's fully compassionate, but it doesn't distract him from justice and mm. doing the right thing. Yeah. So we can trust God to do the right thing and to ensure that people are treated fairly. Uh, and, and that involves taking into account what's happened to them in the past. Yep. Yeah, I think of, you know, at college at the moment we're running a course on child abuse in Christian communities. So we've been talking about this sort of related issues quite a bit. But, um, you know, I would never, where someone's kind of committing offences against children of that kind, mm. uh, we, in the course, the guy who's running the course works really hard at kind of responding to the offenders with compassion and understanding, and, and, and you probably are aware that often offenders have been abused previously. But, um, uh, you know, I'd want to ensure that they're also treated justly and particularly that their victims are vindicated and treated properly. So, again, you know, I, in the way I respond to situations like that, I want to be like God in ensuring that people are treated the way they deserve and yet extending compassion and kindness to them along the way. Yeah. So I think it's it's really, it's very possible to commit someone to a legal process that might put them in jail for years, but be compassionate towards them as a person. Yeah. I don't think they're incompatible. Yeah. So it's not either or in a way. Yeah. Um, I, I had a question that didn't get written down, but I thought it would be a really good one to bring up and we'll get to some of the other ones. But Is this about that essay that I gave you a credit 100%. for? 100%. Come on. Yeah. It was a distinction material, sure, mate. Sure, sure, yeah. Um, no. Um, I wanted to kind of hear your thoughts on where, particularly like for things like depression and anxiety, where does like uh, seeing a counsellor and um, like a psychologist come into this like, uh, yeah. I guess when it comes to emotions. Yeah. yeah, like like a whole range of areas in our life, the disordering of our emotional makeup because of sin, and, you know, for some of us it's years and years of particular sinful habits or years and years of things that we haven't handled properly, we haven't addressed as issues, and that's really shaped us quite profoundly. Um, very often there is a place in this, in our in our emotional world hmm. to get some professional help. It's 
you know, it's like a kind of electrician of the psyche who comes in and helps you rewire things. Yeah. Uh, and someone who's skilled at asking, the, well, where do you think that comes from or why do you think that is? Yeah. So, if, you know, I get angry. If I get angry and I feel like it's irrational or I have feelings of jealousy that are irrational um, or if I have inappropriate desires, um, then, you know, there there are points at which getting professional guidance and help I think is pretty important and Christians need to be careful. I think there's two things going on. Christians sometimes... Uh, uh, nervous about going to professionals, particularly yeah. non-Christian professionals. Yeah. But also um, they're slow to think that this part of their life uh, is worth addressing and putting time and energy into. Yeah. Whereas I think often we get tripped up precisely by this part of our life mm. and we do need to get some help. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I run stuff for guys who are struggling with pornography. I've done that over the years. At the two colleges that I've taught at, I've run support groups for guys who are struggling with pornography and we'll read books together and we'll pray for each other and we'll celebrate people, you know, having triumphs. Yeah. Um, but often, often, you know, there are there is an emotional dimension to that and the way that the nature of their desire has been rewired by pornography that, you know, some of those guys, I've encouraged them to go and see someone professionally. Yeah. No, that's good. There's a time and a place for it for sure. Yeah. Um, people seem to, oh, sorry. When someone is in that much pain and hurt that they have taken their eyes off God, how does one see or feel, feel God's love and, and emotion? Yeah. The reality in a lot of pastoral situations, this is just from personal experience, is that you can't talk people into it. You can't, they're not, if they're in that much pain, they're not very receptive uh, to you reminding them of God's love for them and the nature of God's love for them, it can just seem like words. In some situations, um, you've just got to hang in with them and model that. You've got to, you've kind of got to um, stay with them through that pain and be kind and tender-hearted towards them mm. and um, be there when they kind of come round and they begin to come to again. You know, I think of some situations where it was months of me, you know, giving them Bible verses, talking to them, arranging to meet with them, to encourage them. And in the end, I think the only thing that kind of made any difference was just that I hung in there yeah, and that I loved them. And sometimes just taking them for a drink or taking them for a walk was more important than sitting down and, and bombarding them with Bible verses that yeah. might be relevant. But absolutely, you know, my strategy in most situations would be point them back towards scripture yep. and, um, and, you know, encourage them to go looking for the God who loves them in this tender-hearted kind of way, yep. particularly in the Psalms, but in a whole range of other places as well. Yeah, keep going back to the core. And prayer, you know, I, that rewiring of somebody's emotional makeup, I can't do that. That's beyond me. And that's... I think that's one of the really encouraging things about the way the Bible talks about all of this sort of stuff is that the Holy Spirit is powerful to um, remodel and, and renovate people's wiring. Yeah. The Holy Spirit is committed to making us more like Jesus. Yeah. And to the extent that that involves in addressing our emotions um, for good and for ill, you know, increasing some emotions in some situations and helping us control others, 
um, absolutely the Holy Spirit's on our side yep. in that. No, that's really good. Um, I've got another question. When my emotions conflict with my ideals um, slash God ideals, should emotions trump discipline? Yeah, I kind of, I, I feel like that question sets up an either or that I want to reject. I go, it's not, <laughs> not one or the other. It's holding the two together. And, you know, I, just to show what a warped and twisted person I am, you know, when I was struggling to understand emotion, what did I do about it? I went and wrote a PhD. But um, <laughs> I, I think there was, you know, there is a real place for thinking clearly, going back to scripture, um, engaging in those kinds of disciplines. But um, if at the end of that all, it hadn't shaped and affected my emotional response to God and to people around me, then it would have been a waste of time. And it's really the holding the two together. Yeah. And yeah, there are absolutely times when I need to... Um, ignore my emotions uh, because they're ultimately misleading. And, and, and there's a really interesting verse in 2 Corinthians uh, 2 verse 11 um, where Paul's analysed a situation with the brother that had sinned and mm. people are holding on to disciplining the guy for too long and Paul's going, look, it's time to offer forgiveness. It's time to sort this out. It's amazing. If you go and read the preceding passage from 123 through to 211, it's an amazing analysis of the emotional nature of the situation. So there's all the usual Christian terminology like trusting God and um, forgiveness and doing the right thing and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, there's enormous depth to Paul's emotional analysis of that particular situation. And then um, he, uh, he sums up that discussion by saying, for we are not unaware of Satan's deceptions or Satan's tricks. Yeah. And I think what Paul is saying is that when we don't deal well with emotional stuff, um, it can be incredibly divisive and damaging in our relationships and at church. And that, that's a classic area that Satan has exploited. So I think of going back in church life, one of the reasons I didn't want to go into ministry, given my father's experience, dad was a minister, was because I saw um, the way Christians were capable of treating each other. Mm. And very often that wasn't a theological dispute, but it was just that somebody didn't handle their anger very well. They tried to get people on their side. They kind of recruited supporters, mm. tried to turn them against somebody else then became this kind of resentful situation and they stopped being kind of brothers and sisters that loved each other. You know, often it's been that kind of, it might be a petty thing like, you know, the slice that Mrs. Brown brought to church that day or, you know, what, what, what colour we're going to paint the downpipes or should we, should we put new, I'm not kidding. You know, people do this. Anyone who's been around church more than 10 years will vouch for what I'm saying. You know, the colour of the carpet in the sanctuary, you know, that, just, it can just create this enormous deba debates and, and disputes yeah. that go for generations. And ultimately, you know, a big part of it was that people just didn't handle the emotional dimension of that thing yeah. very effectively. So, yeah. We've got another question. All classical views of God's sovereignty seem to be incompatible with a God of emotions. How do we conceptualize God's sovereignty? That's a big question. Big question. I'll give a simple answer to it in that I, again, I want to question the premises of the question, but um, uh, question the question. The, the Bible has no trouble holding together 
God's emotional relationship with his people and his sovereignty. So the Bible will assert both. God is sovereign over all things and God is a God of tenderhearted compassion, anger, jealousy, love, patience, you know, all those things. So um, again, I, I, what I think the question is referring to is where we started this whole discussion that when Christians did adopt philosophical categories and frameworks for thinking through issues like God's sovereignty, they just really struggled to be able to accommodate the full witness of Scripture. Um, and, you know, Paul talks about this, you know, it's not exactly related to this, but I think it's in the same vein. In 1 Corinthians 1, passage 18, verses 18 to 32, Paul will talk about how um, Jews demand signs and Greeks demand wisdom, and the cross is absolutely scandalous to both of them. So the Jews were empiricists. They wanted evidence. They wanted signs like they often did with Jesus. Perform a sign and we'll believe you. And Greeks wanted things to make sense and be logical. So you go to a Greek and go, the ruler of the universe was crucified on a cross and died for you. And it was just unintelligible. They just went, that can't possibly work. And, um, and Paul had to go, no. God's deliberately acted to frustrate your philosophical framework <laughs> by achieving his purposes through the cross. God's deliberately thwarted the philosopher, made the wise person nothing because he wants your salvation to rest on faith in him and his goodness in Jesus. And in, in a sense, I think that question is kind of coming out of a similar yeah. kind of clash of the frameworks yeah. um, because when I go back to scripture, um, scripture tells me God is sovereign and his purposes will be fulfilled in the mm-hmm. end and nothing can thwart that. And at the same time that he's tenderhearted, merciful. Yep. Yeah. That he loves me. Mm. Oh, that's good. Thank you. I so was... I think scripture holds the yeah, two yeah. together and we can't, you know, it's exactly the problem I described at the beginning of this session was when I went to the theological books that had been affected by that Greek kind of philosophical yeah. stuff, yes, there is real problem accommodating God's emotion. Yeah. But actually when you go back to the Bible, there isn't. Yeah. The two are held together. Yeah. So I think it's just a matter of going back to Scripture again and again. Yeah. No, that's, that's really helpful. Um, could you expand on what you mean by an appropriate place uh, for jealousy within marriage? That's a fantastic question. Yeah, let me begin by saying that there can be really inappropriate places uh, for jealousy. And, you know, when people are analysing the problem of domestic abuse in our culture, which is a terrible, terrible problem, um, one of the big problems is that kind of jealousy where particularly a husband, can happen with a wife as well, has to control the movements, the relationships, the activities of their partner and want to monitor them on their phones, want to know whoever they've been talking to, that kind of stuff. So there, absolutely there's a problem in our culture where um, jealousy can get out of hand mm-hmm. and really I think spills over into the envy that nobody thinks is acceptable mm-hmm. because you're not entitled to control your partner's world. You're not entitled to tell them who they can and can't talk to. That isn't love. So it's not something you're entitled to. So I, I, I'd rather apply the word envy than jealousy to that because yeah. – because um, I, I want to maintain a healthy place for jealousy. And, you know, certainly we could go to the Bible and I could, um, you know, that passage that I referred to 
in Exodus 34. Uh, talks about the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, um, abounding in love. Uh, that passage, just a few verses later in verse 14 of Exodus 34, um, God will reveal his name as jealous. He'll say, for I am a jealous God, my name is jealous. So there is a profound truth here that we must not throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, we may recognize that jealousy can be very, very problematic, but please don't dismiss jealousy as a good thing because of that. Mm. Because God is revealed in all his glory. God is a jealous God who defends what he's entitled to um, and defends the holiness of his name with fierce intensity. That's ultimately where his anger comes from because of his jealous guarding of an exclusive relationship. And that's the nature of the covenantal relationship with Israel is that it's an, it's an exclusive relationship where Israel says, we will not worship any other gods. We will not bow down to idols. And God commits to being their God. Now, when Israel goes chasing after other gods, God is absolutely entitled to go, no, 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 that's not okay. You promised you wouldn't do that. So, you know, we could go to the Bible. Um, uh, Jesus is jealous for God's name in John 2. And Paul talks about being jealous with the jealousy of God in 2 Corinthians 10 or 11. Um, and Phineas, there's a character in the Old Testament, Numbers 25. Phineas is, commanded, uh, is commended for displaying the jealousy of God in a situation where Israel is being faithless and idolatrous. But the other way I'd approach this question is a story. One of my dearest friends, going back a very long time, you might have noticed I'm not a very young man, and this is a friendship that extends back 45 years. I was there when she was converted, and she's a very, a very dear friend. Her husband cheated on her, had a child with another woman, and he was in the process of uh, moving in with the other woman. And um, he had three sons with uh, my dear friend. And uh, I sat her down and I said, what do you want to do in this? What outcome are you after in this situation? Because, you know, no one would criticize you if you left him. And she said, no, he's my husband. He stood up and made promises in front of my family and friends to be my husband He's the father of my children. I'm not sharing him with anyone. He is my husband. And I said, okay, so you want to fight for the marriage? She said, yes, and no other Christian friends are helping me do that. She had one other friend who was prepared to help her fight for the marriage. And I said, okay, if that's what you're after, I want to help you. And I didn't think we are getting anywhere. I chucked rocks at his head. I met him. I went into town, had lunch with him, and he was just hard-hearted and refused to listen. Um, but he came round. Wow. Because of the nature of her jealous love, she made it clear she was willing to forgive him, but only if he was committed to the exclusiveness of their marriage mm. and didn't sleep around with other women. And um, she won the day with her fiercely jealous love. And I'm... Um, as you can see, this is 30-something years ago probably, I'm still in awe of her, but I saw, you know, that sort of intense jealousy at its absolute best mm. and she secured 
you know, the restoration of a husband and, um, the, you know, they're still together as a family and he's been a father to his three children. He's now a grandfather to their grandchildren and that's because she was prepared to fight jealously for the relationship and forgive him of the most terrible things a husband can do to his wife. Mm. And I am in awe of her and she's one of the reasons why I have to insist that there really is a place for jealousy in marriage um, out of that situation. Mm. Uh, and she was also fully supportive of, of fully supportive of him paying appropriate financial support for the child that he'd had with the other woman. So I was just, I'm still in awe of yeah, wow. my dear friend. Yeah. Wow. Got one more question, and then we'll wrap up for yeah, the sure. night. Um, what emotions can we have toward the church in pursuing unity? Can we have anger for the church in certain situations, and how do we convey that? Uh, I guess for change or in an appropriate way. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, the obvious answer is love, but but hopefully we've highlighted the problem with that being the obvious and simplistic answer because often we translate love into something much more manageable than the messiness of the kind of tender-hearted love that the Bible talks about. So, you know, I'm I'm inclined to go, I'm loving I'm loving my church community. When I turn up each Sunday, hang around for a little while afterwards and don't abuse anyone on the way out. You know, I feel like <laughs> I've, I've been committed to church. I'm involved in church. I love church. Um, whereas uh, deep down I know that love takes much more than that and it's a lot messier than that. Mm. And engaging with people and their lives, talking to them about the reality of what's going on, getting alongside blokes in all that, you know, all the things we struggle with, um, treating women with absolute purity but um, warm affection, uh, keeping children safe at church. It requires enormous vigilance but it requires, you know, what the Bible calls us to is a tender-hearted, compassionate love for each other. Mm. And so often what we've done traditionally is, We've reduced love to that altruistic, I do good to people and I don't berate them. Um, and, and we're like the Pharisees in the New Testament in that we work out the bare minimum that we owe to be able to tick the love box. And our churches, you know, our churches just cool down, the temperature drops and church becomes much less attractive place because we're just not engaging with each other in the way that we're meant to, with that kind of tender-hearted, genuine engagement where we want to share our lives. We want to get alongside each other. We want to help each other. We want to pray for each other. We want to drop meals around to each other. You know, all of the things that the New Testament outlines as our mutual responsibilities to each other. Mm. We've kind of settled for a, a really watered-down love um, that's, you know, I can tell you that it's kind of got the support of all that philosophical background we talked about, but it just falls way short of the love of God that's revealed to us in scripture. And that you don't see any more clearly than in the person of Jesus. Um, and you think of how messy love got for Jesus mm. on a daily basis, but his whole life, you think of what it took for him to love and serve us with a tender hearted, compassionate love. Um, incredibly costly, incredibly painful for the Lord Jesus anxiety-inducing, 
for terror inducing in the garden, but he did it for us. Mm. And I, I think once you let emotions in, one of, the, one of our great fears of emotion is that it gets messy, but um, it gets messy for a reason. Emotions connect us with the God who really is there and, and demands change from us. Mm. And it connects us with people around us who really are as messed up as we are. And so love can be a really costly venture. But, you know, I, I often say when I'm talking about this stuff, if I'd avoided church from a young age, I could have, I could have saved myself the vast majority of pain that I've been through because so much of it's been brought into my life by wanting to get alongside other people, support other people by experiencing their pain. You know, weeping with people who weep can be very costly and painful. Mm. And so I look back and go, if only I'd avoided church, I could have saved myself so much pain and, <laughs> and agony. And then I look back and go, and I would have lost 90% of the joy in my life. Mm. The joy that comes from knowing people and being involved in people's lives and having them know and love me. Mm. So, you know, you, you can't, and this is, I think this is what we've settled for. We've kind of limited that whole emotional dimension and engagement. And we've paid a really serious price for that. Mm. So I think it's really going back to scripture and having God and the Lord Jesus define for us what love looks like rather mm. than settling for the kind of vegetable substitute that's often offered to us. That's really good. Thank you again, Richard. Um, really insightful. I've learned a lot myself today, uh, tonight. I hope everyone else uh, that's tuned in has as well. Um, if you liked this, please, please like and subscribe. Share it around. We'd love for other people to hear about this. But thank you, Gibbo, one more time. And uh, let's go on for the rest of the night. So for those of you who are staying, we're going to be going out for some food now. Um, I think, Gibbo, you're going to be staying around a for just while. a yeah. little bit. Yeah. Um, so if you have any other burning questions, I'm, I'm sure he'd be happy to chat with you. Absolutely. Let's give him a hand, hey? Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Ha, <laughs> ha,